0: I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Ann Beth Stebbins, an M&A partner at Skadden in New York. Ann Beth, thank you for joining us.
1: Hi, David. Good to be here.
0: So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, a little bit about your background, how you came to practice law, came to Skadden, your time with Skadden in London, and then returning to New York and then building a a practice in New York and how that's informed your views on staffing and succession planning in regards to client relationships. A little about how you and Skadden have tried to maintain and strengthen relationships with board members over the last year or year and a half during the course of the pandemic and then finally how you have stayed sane in the pandemic which in your case has taken the form of taking up golf which is a hobby that of course drives many people to insanity so <laughs> with that tell us about yourself how you came to practice law
1: so i had a, a roundabout route to get to the practice of law, I went to undergrad at Georgetown, I was an economics and government major, and so worked on the hill and did all those sorts of things while I was in undergrad. But by the time it was, you know, rolling around to graduation, I realized I did not want to work on the hill. I felt like I had done that, and that really wasn't where I saw myself five years, ten years down the road. Which I guess it's as far down the road as you can look when you're 21. And so, you know, I interviewed on campus went through our on-campus re- recruiting process, and I took the highest-paying job. That was awkward to me. That really was my criteria. <laughs> I needed a job and. know The recruiters were on campus for banks and consulting firms, and I took a job with National Westminster Bank, which was one of the largest British banks at the time, and they were hiring for their U.S. operations. As I said, I was a liberal arts major, but um, I went through an intensive training program at NetWest Uh, which was six months of classroom, everything you always wanted to know about financial statement analysis and evaluating risk and reading a balance sheet. And they would bring in MBA professors from Columbia and NYU. And then also as part of the program, they would pay for NetWest paid for you to go to NYU Stern School of Business at night. So I took full advantage of the program. After the six-month classroom-only stint, I rotated in different areas of the bank and did my NYU program at night. And I was about halfway through the program when I took business law and it was like everything clicked for me. I was very sort of indecisive when I was coming out of college as to what I wanted to be when I grew up. really liked my introduction to the business world when I was at NatWest and really enjoyed getting to know about companies, understanding from a credit perspective their goals and their challenges. But then when I took business law, It was sort of putting together the right side and left side of my brain, you know, sort of the more analytical, problem-solving, creative side that you have as a a liberal arts major, again, with the the business skills that I had obtained over the last few years at NetWest. So as soon as I finished my NYU program, I left and went back to school full-time, went back to my alma mater, Georgetown, where I'm still very involved. And so I was very transaction-oriented and focused when I did return to school full-time. And during my time at Georgetown, I took transaction-oriented classes. I actually spent my first summer working at Millbank in litigation, just to make sure that I didn't want to be a litigator. And then was a summer associate at Skadden after my second year of law school, and I've been at Skadden ever since. I still had that little bit of Washington bug in me, so when I was a summer associate, I split my summer between. New York and D.C. couldn't really make up my mind. And I actually did wind up starting in D.C. Scadden is one of a handful of firms that has a, a transactional practice out of D.C. So I thought, OK, I can do both, still be in D.C. and have a transactional practice. But that lasted for about a year and a half before the firm had other things in mind for me.
0: <laughs> and so you you ended up going first to Hong Kong and then to London. And you found yourself in London in an extraordinarily... Interesting time for MA in Europe.
1: I, I did. And, you know, it was not part of any grand plan at all. I love talking to law students now or young associates, and they're you know, charting out their career. And my advice to them is always just take advantage of opportunities when they come your way. I had no international background. I, I had done a semester abroad when I was in, in college, but, you know, didn't have any language skills or you know, anything in my resume that would say, oh, she's a perfect person to go work in one of our international offices. But things just happened for a reason. And when I was in DC, the head of our office asked if I would be available to help on a deal in Hong Kong, and could I get on a plane the next day? So I got loaned out to our Hong Kong office as a second-year associate. The one deal I got sent to work on morphed into four or five subsequent deals because it was, this was 1996, it was pre-handover. So there was a lot going on in Asia at the time. And I really enjoyed the international experience. So when I came back to DC after close to a year, I thought, okay, now I'm ready to do something different. And I talked to the firm about going back to Hong Kong in a more long-term stint. And they suggested London because that's where they saw a need. And M&A was, as you mentioned, just about to take off in London. So this time I had four-week lead time <laughs> rather than leaving the next day. And I wound up spending the next eight years of my career in our London office. And I arrived in London in March of 1997. The investment banks were expanding in the European market. The investment banks were bringing their relationships with U.S. law firms with them um, and suggesting to their clients who were engaging in big M&A transactions to hire U.S. law firms, and we were making real inroads. Our office when I got to London was about 25 attorneys and largely U.S. lawyers. I'd say, you know, of the 25, we were probably 15 U.S. lawyers, 10 English lawyers. And now I think if you look at our and London office, we probably have a, close to 150 lawyers and maybe the number of U.S. lawyers hasn't changed very much, but the U.K. lawyers have, have grown it exponentially. So it was a, a great time to be there, a real growth time for M&A in Europe, but also for the practice in our London office.
0: And then uh, there were a couple of deals in particular that were complicated, prominent, went on for months and months that you worked on LVMH Gucci and then the battle for Rodamco.
1: So it was the dream client to be on the Gucci team. I had been in the London office for about a year or so at that time. And Scott Simpson, who has been a really important mentor in my career, got a phone call from Joe Flam to say that Gucci needed help that Prada had bought a large stake in Gucci and had a 10% stake Scott developed a relationship with Domenico De Sole who was the CEO at the time
0: I have to ask just because Joe Flom is Joe Flom did Domenico De Sole call Joe Flom or how did
1: Yeah Domenico called Joe Flom yeah. <laughs> As one does when one is, you know, under attack, and that fire was put out. But at least it gave Scott the opportunity to develop a, a relationship with Domenico. And about a year or so later, Domenico gets a phone call right after the the Christmas holiday break from the chairman of LVMH, saying, "We've just acquired twenty seven percent of your stock, and we'd like to put our representative on your board." And so we, you know, engaged. Immediately, it was sort of a war room mentality, all hands on deck. How do we defend against the biggest competitor of Gucci trying to get a seat on the board or multiple seats on the board without making an offer to all shareholders? Gucci is a Dutch company at, at the time, but listed on New York Stock Exchange.
0: And just a quick point, the CEO of LVMH then as now was Bernard Arnault, Correct
1: that is correct that is correct and so what we did is pulled out from our history books in the 80s a mechanism that had been used but was out of favor in the US an ESOP structure which in the Netherlands was referred to as a stichting and Gucci issued an amount of shares to the stichting equal to the amount of shares that LVMH had purchased in the open market to basically offset their influence that was challenged in Dutch court immediately. And I, it's funny, as an m a lawyer, I really don't spend much time in the courtroom, except for the Dutch courts during that stretch, because we were in the courtroom every day. Everything's in Dutch. I'm <laughs> sitting with the interpreter. And LBMH had challenged what Gucci had done as a defense, as, as mismanagement of the company, Gucci ultimately prevailed in the meantime that gave us a window to look for a white knight and as you mentioned Bernard Arnault was the CEO of LVMH his biggest rival in France was a guy called Francois Pino. and Francois Pino came in with 3 billion dollars and bought a stake that basically neutralized LVMH with a standstill provision for 5 years so it, it was it was again The dream client, because for that five year time period, Gucci went on a spending spree and I worked on the acquisitions of Yves Saint Laurent, Balenciaga, Alexandra McQueen, Stella McCartney. I got to go to all the fashion shows. I had a discount card. I was very well dressed. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) it, it really was a great time in my career as a mid level to senior associate. I mean, the highest profile. Client you could have. We were, you know, on the front page of Time magazine, Vanity Fair, you know, obviously Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. But just to be in the middle of all of that drama was very exciting. And also, you know, to, to be able to adopt something that had been used as a defense for a very unique situation in the Netherlands. You know, case of first impression and the Dutch courts. So really a, a very like the, the seminal deal that, I, that I've worked on in my whole career. It was career altering, I think. And you mentioned Rodamco, which really the tables were turned. Rodamco was a Dutch company and our client, Westfield, decided to make an unsolicited offer for Rodamco, basically using the same playbook that LVMH had used for Gucci. And this time we were on the attack side where brought in Simon Property Group as its White Knight. But as luck would have it, and I'll tell you why this is a real happy ending story, Simon and Westfield teamed up. So Westfield, the bad guy, teamed up with Simon the White Knight to eventually acquire Dampco and split up the assets. But in the process of that transaction, I met my husband, who was a partner at Wilkie at the time, representing Simon. And so not only did the deal have a happy ending because our clients wound up with the assets, but I also wound up with a husband.
0: (laughs) So then you made partner in London and you returned to New York when you got married.
1: I did. It was not um, the best timing, but, you know, these things happen. So I made partner In April and got engaged in May. (laughs) So, uh, and you know, making partner at a firm like Skadden is really tough. I had made that my goal and worked really hard to achieve partnership. But when you're making partner, it's not just all about you. It's about the business need of the firm, the business need of a particular practice. And so the M&A practice in Europe was growing. I was, again, largely due to Scott Simpson, an important part of the growth of the practice in London. So it was a very tough message to have to deliver to, you know, at the time, Peter Adkins and Roger Aaron to say, Thanks for making me partner last month. This is like, you know, the greatest thing that's ever happened in my career, but I've just gotten engaged and my Wilkie husband to be does not want to move to London. Wilkie had a really small office in London at the time and just would not have fit his career path. So I I did come back and it was just a a great time to come back to again. I was really, really lucky because we got married in 2005 and I got back, you know, sort of mid 2005. Not having a lot of relationships with clients or partners in New York for that matter, but it was a really busy time in MA, you know, sort of mid 2005 through mid 2007. And, you know, I was a young partner. So, you know, people, my more senior partners were very appreciative to have a second set of hands and really deepening the bench and, and having the real opportunity to help with important clients in New York and start developing my own relationships.
0: So how did you go about building relationships, both in SCAD's New York office and with uh, clients and potential clients in the U.S.?
1: So initially, when I came back mid two thousand five, like I said, it was just busy. So I was the second chair on a bunch of deals. Roger Aaron was very good to me. Steve Arcano, Eileen Nugent, you know some of the, the senior partners at Scadden. But two thousand seven, two thousand eight, when things turned for the worse, not the best time to be a young partner without a lot of client relationships. So those were some difficult years. I think for everyone, you know, in M and A, it was so unpredictable and. You were wondering when your next deal was coming. I got really, again, lucky. I keep saying lucky, but I do feel very fortunate in the way my career has turned out. But in 2010, I was working with one of our senior partners, Paul Schnell, for a client from our German office. Apex Partners, a private equity firm, and and the relationship was through a partner in Germany. They were looking at an acquisition in Brazil. Paul had a lot of relationships in Brazil um, and asked me to work on this deal with him. And it was the first deal that a lot of these guys on the APEX team, and I say guys because it was all guys, but they were working on their first deal in Brazil. It was a relatively young team that didn't have a lot of deal experience. And we really were all in it together for an extended period of time. But I developed some great relationships with the members of the deal team who have all gone on to very successful careers at Apex, and they've become one of my most important clients through those relationships that were established in Sao Paulo over the course of six months. <laughs> um, so it, it, that really was, a, I think, another turning point in my career, developing those relationships and developing that client. And, you know, when you develop a client in the PE space, you meet PE lawyers on the other side, they have conflicts, you get referrals. Also, you know, members of deal teams that I've worked on have gone on to smaller funds or to other funds and taken advantage of their career movements as well.
0: You were very fortunate to move to London at a time when there was massively growing demand for M&A advice in Europe. And then when you moved back to Scan's office in New York, you had to reorient your practice. How has each of those experiences affected how you think about staffing younger lawyers on deals and helping them develop their careers so that you and the firm strengthen the firm's relationships with clients?
1: I think it really has informed the way that I staff my transactions and think about the development of my team, having them grow into roles with more responsibility, having them have client-facing opportunities. Because I think the deeper the bench, the more you solidify the relationship with the client. And this makes me think about a comment that you made in your intro remarks about succession planning and I think that can never start too early. I really like to give my team face time with clients, let them develop relationships, not just, you know, if I'm not available, they have someone to call, but to nurture that relationship so that there is succession planning and that the relationship goes beyond just one person. I mean, it is really so competitive out there and the decision makers at clients do change. So the more touch points you have, I think the more that relationship is solidified and the client feels comfortable with more than just one person on the team or a small group on the team.
0: You've also thought about client relationships as as a firm in the context of your relationships with board members. Tell us about that effort.
1: So, we have focus groups of young partners where we give them a task. You know, here's an issue. How would you solve it? And one thing that came out of that process was an idea for more engagement with boards of directors. Boards of directors are an important source of business, particularly when you have a transformational transaction or something that's bet the company. Our relationships had tended to be more C-suite, CEO, CFO, GC, but we thought we could do a better job in really cultivating relationships with board members who have an important role in the choice of counsel in in those types of situations. Of course, these ideas are harder to implement in times of pandemic where you can't have in-person events, bring in speakers, get boards together with other like-minded board members so they can exchange ideas. All of those things are really attractive to board members and easier to get buy-in. And so we thought, okay, well, people are Zoomed out. How can we get to our audience? And so we've come up with a publication that we call the informed board. It's aimed at boards, so it's not legalistic. We try and pick four or five topics that are relevant to board members. We try and use mixed media. So there was a podcast in one of the first informed board publications that we pushed out. But really the questions that boards are asking, the things that boards wanna know in language that's tailored to a board member and not overly legalistic and, and short and snappy. We've brought in an external editor who is someone well known to David, who is a former colleague, I think, way back at at the deal in Bloomberg, writing it like a journalist, right? Not like a lawyer. And hopefully we're on to something. Some of the articles have gotten picked up and gotten some wider traction, and we're hitting topics that are relevant to board members.
0: And that podcast was with your husband, Bob, who was general counsel of the SEC from 2017 to 2020. Tell us a little about what you learned from his stint in that job.
1: So Bob and Jay Clayton were best friends from law school. Jay was the best man at our wedding. And when Jay was nominated to chair the SEC, he asked Bob to come down and be his general counsel, which was Apart from the fact that he was in DC Monday through Friday and commuted back on weekends, so I didn't see him very much during the week. It was a fantastic experience for him, but also a fantastic experience for me. I tried to spend a week, a month in DC over the last four years, and you just get a completely different perspective on how the SEC and how government in general works, but also the talented people who are at the commission, who really are trying to do the right thing for investors and give up opportunities that could be far more lucrative to work for the better good. And I really enjoyed being a fly on the wall during those years and getting to know people at the SEC, at Treasury, at the other agencies that he worked with. And now he's back and we'll see what he does next.
0: You mentioned the pandemic. How, apart from work, have you dealt with the pandemic and tried to retain some sense of of normalcy over the last 15 months?
1: Well, I I have to confess that we've been luckier than most. We have a a weekend house in New Jersey. And we actually, before the pandemic, had moved out of New York to renovate our apartment. So everything was in storage anyway. I was splitting my time between DC, where my husband was working, and our house in New Jersey. And so when everything hit, I just decamped to New Jersey, which was a, a pretty good place to be. I think what you're referring to, David, is some of the pastimes that I have picked up during the pandemic. And since I'm at our weekend house, which is you know, sort of in a, a beach community, and then we have a, a golf club that we belong to here, I've never had time for golf or the time that I have devoted to trying to learn golf has been just a, a failure because there's never been enough time. But my goal during the pandemic was to learn how to play golf. And so I have been taking lessons three times a week at eight o'clock in the morning before work starts. And I think I've mastered it. I've been a golf widow my entire marriage. And so I figured, you know, this was my big opportunity to try and learn how to play golf so I could play with my husband. (laughs)
0: And and have you developed the same kind of golf obsession he has or or that's...
1: Well, that's 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 a whole nother level. But I did watch the Walker Cup yesterday and was really into it. So there's that. No, I see how people get obsessive. I don't know if I'll ever be 18 holes five days a week. Like, you know, he probably would be if he had the chance. But but I am (laughs) enjoying it. And you definitely enjoy it more, the better you get. It is a very frustrating game, but I'm enjoying it. It's fun.
0: As you mentioned at the outset, you've been very loyal to Georgetown since you went to school there. Tell us a little bit about that and how you've been involved there over the past year when obviously you you haven't been able to go to campus.
1: So someone recently described me as a super Hoya, (laughs) and I think that rings true. So as I said, I went to Georgetown for both undergrad and law school. And I have continued to be very involved. I was on the board of regents for six years at undergrad. I'm on the board of visitors at the law center. I'm on the advisory board for the students of Georgetown, which is the largest student run corporation in the U.S. And they run all of the concessions on campus, coffee and a little supermarket and snacks. I worked there when I was an undergrad. And now I do their pro bono work because they're always having issues. And I'm on their advisory board. I'm an adjunct professor at the Law Center. For the past five years or so, I've taught a class called Advising the Board in an M&A Transaction. During the pandemic, that's been challenging because I've been doing it on Zoom. And as hard as it is for kids to take classes on Zoom, I have such an appreciation for teachers and professors who have to teach via Zoom. It is tough uh, keeping, keeping students engaged. And then I'm always, you know, an informal mentor for students, recent graduates, high school students thinking about going to Georgetown. I do alumni interviews, and uh, every every single uh, child of one of my friends who's applying to Georgetown, I think I write a letter for. So I, the, the Georgetown stuff does keep me very busy. And last but not least,
0: New Jersey. You grew up in New Jersey. You're rusticating in New Jersey through the pandemic. Tell us about New Jersey.
1: I am a Jersey girl through and through and proud of it. And my fun fact is that I have seen 200 Bruce Springsteen shows and I can't wait for the pandemic to be over so I can see some more.
0: Has he scheduled any shows or that's to be determined?
1: Uh, Not yet, but I can promise that I'll be on it as soon as he does.
0: And Beth, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, David. Good to talk to you.
0: For Drinks With The Deal, I'm David Marcus.